He made the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood. Five cubits was its length and five cubits its width. It was square and its height was three cubits. He made its horns on its four corners. The horns were of one piece with it. And he overlaid it with bronze. He made all the utensils for the altar, the pans, the shovels, the basins, the forks and the fire pans, all its utensils he made of bronze and he made a grate of bronze network for the altar under its rim midway from the bottom. He cast four rings for the four corners of the bronze grating as holders for the poles and he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze. Then he put the poles into the rings on the sides of the altar with which to bear it. He made the altar hollow with boards. He made the laver of bronze and its base of bronze from the bronze mirrors of the serving women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then he made the court on the south side. The hangings of the court were a fine woven linen, 100 cubits long. They were 20 pillars for them with 20, uh, with 20 bronze sockets. The hooks of the pillars and their bands were silver. On the north side, the hangings were 100 cubits long with 20 pillars and their 20 bronze sockets. The hooks of the pillars and their bands were, were silver. And on the west side, there were hangings of 50 cubits with 10 pillars and their 10 sockets. The hooks of the pillars and their bands were silver. For the east side, the hangings were 50 cubits. The hangings of one side of the gate were 15 cubits long with their three pillars and their three sockets. And the same for the other side of the court gate. On this side uh, and that were hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. All the hangings of the court all around were a fine woven linen. The sockets for the pillars were bronze. The hooks of the pillars and their uh, bands were silver and the overlay of their capitals was silver and all the pillars of the court had bands of silver. The screen for the gate of the court was woven of blue, purple and scarlet thread and a fine woven linen. The length was 20 cubits and the height along its way was five cubits corresponding to the hangings of the court and there were four pillars with their four sockets of bronze. Their hooks were silver and uh, the overlay of their capitals and their bands was silver. All the pegs of the tabernacle and of the court all around were bronze. This is the inventory of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the testimony, which was counted according to the commandment of Moses for the service of the Levites by the hand of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. Bezalel, the son of Uri, Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord had commanded Moses. And with it was Aholiab, the son of Ahistamak, of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and designer, a weaver of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and a fine linen. And the gold, all the gold that was used in all the work of the holy place, that is, the gold of the offering, was 29 talents and 730 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. And the silver from those who were numbered of the congregation was 100 talents, and on 1,775 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, a bakah for each man, that is, half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, for everyone included in the numbering from 20 years above, old and above, for 603,550 men, 
And from the hundred talents of silver were cast the sockets of the sanctuary and the bases of the veil, one hundred sockets from the, from the hundred talents, one hundred talents for each socket. Then from the 1,775 shekels he made hooks for the pillars, overlaid their capital, uh, capitals and made bands for them. The offering of bronze was 70 talents and 2,400 shekels. And with it he made the sockets for the door of the tabernacle of meeting, the bronze altar, the bronze grating for it, and all the utensils for the altar, the sockets for the court all around, the bases for the court gate, all the pegs for the tabernacle, and all the pegs for the court all around. And let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we acknowledge to you uh, the greatness of your word as we see it. Uh, Even in uh, some of its more meticulous details, we recognize that you have something to say to your people, not just Israel, but the New Testament church. Both Testaments uh, standing forth as something which have something to say to us. And we ask you that we might have ears to hear what Israel did not have ears to hear. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a passage which uh, chronicles the completion of the tabernacle. If you remember, in in the 20s of Exodus, we had the instructions which God gave to Moses in meticulous fashion. And then here we have uh, the, the, the construction of the ark according to that design. And one of the questions that we have, it's a question, for instance, that Matthew Henry asks, and it's a natural question that I'm going to answer in a moment. Why take the trouble to explain uh, or to record all of this in such detail again? And certainly, uh, I think you can imagine the obstacles that it presents for preaching, uh, since we've already gone through these exact uh, chapters, in essence, and they're just being repeated here, with the only difference that they were building now what they were told to build in earlier chapters. But the word which... Uh, occurs to me uh, as describing, as best describing what we have in these chapters is meticulous. It's such a meticulous uh, description of a meticulous work that was meticulously recorded. That's the thing you notice at the end, uh, verses 21 to the end of the chapter. The inventory that was being taken, I don't really have anything more to say about that except it, it, it just falls in line with everything that Moses was uh, recording. From start to finish, from the plan and the design to the execution of the work to the inventory of the work, meticulous. But having said that, uh, and and, and wishing to divide this sermon under three main headings, uh, I want to begin, and and following Matthew Henry, no surprise there, uh, by exploring the value of repetition. This is something that we find not just here, but consistently in Scripture. Have you ever thought to ask, surely you have, why are there four Gospels and not one? Basically recounting the same story three uh, three times in the synoptics and then told a little differently in John. Uh, And then you you come to the epistles and you find uh, things which are being taught over and over again. Uh, The reality is that there is great value in repetition, which the Bible itself says explicitly Uh, I can't remember where it is. I think it's Peter, but one of you will correct me if it isn't. But that he says, I repeat uh, these things, which is safe for me uh, and for you. 
And so this is the method of biblical teaching. We discover in our reading of the Bible, this, as I'm saying, is nothing out of the ordinary. The Bible loves to repeat itself. This is something we're going to find, and we're going to have to explore the question again next week in Romans, when Paul underscores a point that he has already underscored uh, in such a way that you ask, why even take the trouble to bring it up again, Paul? But you have to understand the method of the Bible. And you also have to understand the method, not just of the Bible, but biblical preaching. Uh, biblical preaching, this is something that Martin Lloyd-Jones emphasizes consistently in his own teaching. And it was the thing you might notice if you ever took the trouble to read his sermons, which I've pretty much done at this point. I think I've read almost all of them. Uh, but the thing he was most criticized for, it, and you find him defending it in his preaching, a lot like Paul would do, was the fact that he was, he was repeating himself so much. Uh, and, you know, I've been, I've been criticized for that, too, from time to time. Uh, but but uh, the good teacher, Lloyd-Jones, would say is the man who repeats himself like Paul because uh, my job and the job of the Bible is not to thrill you with great oratory. It's just to get the point Cross and, and to make certain that we are clear about the things that are really important. And we are so sinful and we are so forgetful that we need to be reminded over and over again. So it's the biblical method of, 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 of scripture itself, but also of preaching. Another reason in this particular case that we find this uh, repetition, which is tedious and it is meticulous, but it was in order to show the exact correspondence between the model and the structure. If Moses had not done this and only given the instructions, it, it might be left uh, for some to wonder whether they really did do what God told them to do. But here Moses is saying that every detail that God prescribed, they were careful to follow. Now, did that make them Pharisees? Some people would say so because uh, they would say that uh, adherence to the details of law makes you a Pharisee. But that isn't what Jesus says. And so that's another point that we might notice about the value of this particular repetition. And that is simply that the details do matter. The minutia of the law down to the very smallest of the details are intensely important to God. And they ought to be intensely important to the godly. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that the essence of Phariseeism, uh, that is the outlook of the Pharisees, was not their carefulness and their meticulousness in keeping the law. It was the fact that they were hypocrites, which, which uh, really uh, is a shame if you are someone who is uh, putting yourself forward as someone who is so careful to keep the law. Jesus is telling them not that you were wrong to keep the details or the law in a detailed way. He's saying that. You really ought to do to have done better if that was your interest. The reality is you miss the whole point of the law. If you read Matthew chapter five, you will uh, you will arrive at this unmistakable conclusion again that the details of the law matter far more than the Pharisees themselves even realized. And so the Bible is celebrating the godliness of these men in in doing all that God commanded them to do, but. A fourth reason that repetition is valuable in this case was as a help to the people. Now, I needed Matthew Henry to point this out to me. I, I, I don't know that this would have ever occurred to me. But if you think of the importance of the tabernacle, one of the things that you have to appreciate about the tabernacle is that no one in Israel ever got to experience it except for the priest. And the inner room, only the high priest once a year. 
And so uh, what Moses is doing is, is in essence describing to the people again the very center of their religion. The sanctuary that was patterned after the heavenly sanctuary. And this is something uh, that was obviously valuable to the, to the godly. He was describing for them something that was lovely. Something that was lovely in itself based upon what occurred there. And something that was lovely in its correspondence to the heavenly realities. And in describing the glories of the church. That was the church of the Old Testament. We could say the same of the New Testament. We are made to fall in love with it. And this is not a theme we can hear about too often. So that's what Moses was doing there. But as a second point, there's almost a throwaway verse. uh, Although it, it grips you. It gripped me when I was reading it just now. You have all this detail. It was hard to read. I admit it. All this detail. And, and certainly it's hard to comprehend. But there's this verse that just grips you. And it's what is said in chapter 38 verse 8. He made the laver of bronze and its base of bronze from the bronze mirrors of the serving women. Who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. It's such an interesting uh, reference. You almost just breeze right past it until you say wait a second. What did Moses just say? He said that here were the. He calls them. Uh, the serving women. Or Acts calls them the devout women. Uh, variously in scripture we have references to a group of women who were especially devout and pious. And scripture is here celebrating and acknowledging not only their place at the tabernacle and their ministry at the tabernacle, but their contribution. And that is something which is worth Uh, pausing and considering because this is another point that we find highlighted in scripture again and again it's it's admittedly uh, a difficult point to make you have to be careful when you talk about these things but but the second point of the sermon is the piety of the women the piety of the women how often The Bible highlights the piety of godly women. And how much, let me say, this is a point that needs to be made in a Presbyterian setting, how much the well-being of the church depends upon the godliness of the women. They are not secondary citizens of the church. They may not be rulers of the church, but let us have a scriptural view of the church in all of its facets. And a key component of the church in every age, has been the presence of godly women. So this is something that the Bible always celebrates when you read through the Bible. In fact, it celebrates it so much that people have run away with it and created a whole feministic theology out of the Bible itself. Well, I think we can agree that's going too far, but let us look at the issue honestly as a help to ourselves today as we are trying to form a biblical ecclesiology. This is obviously something that is important to me. It's something I'm stressing a lot lately. Do not discount the place of the women. Why does the Bible celebrate it? Well, the Bible doesn't celebrate it because it is unthinkable from the standpoint of biblical religion that women should be godly. The Bible is not misogynistic and giving a throwaway acknowledgement to the women here or there. But it celebrates the piety of godly women as though to say God notices them too, especially when we are apt to forget them and that we ought not to forget them. Now, this is something which not only the Bible celebrates, but something that you might notice uh, in the study of history if you enjoy the study of history. 
I, I, I recently began uh, the, the volumes of Solzhenitsyn on the Gulag Archipelago. And one of the things that I'm most interested to discover in reading uh, those volumes is the way in which the communists persecuted the church. But one of the things that he highlights, and this didn't surprise me at all, God's providence always lines up just right. I thought of it as a perfect illustration for this sermon. He says, the people who are the least willing to give in under the pressures of communism and forsake the faith, the people who are the most steadfast in maintaining their confession, were women. It was always women. And that's something that you notice, in, again, as I say, in the study of history. Something that is remarkable. The steadfastness of women in the church. Now, this is something uh, which, in some sense, you might say, doesn't need to be stressed today. Because women are certainly less forgotten than they used to be. But the forwardness of modern women is exactly what the godly woman in Scripture puts to shame. And certainly, we could say, I think, when women are celebrated today, it isn't for their godliness. And so, again, we need to let the Bible adjust our values. What is it that God is looking for in the women of the church? And here, Scripture points, again, to the godliness of devout women or the serving women as a model and a help for women today. Again, uh, their presence is something you find everywhere in Scripture. You find a, a band of godly women attending Jesus in the Gospels. You find them in Acts. Women whose godliness was seen in their attending the tabernacle. Women whose primary concern, that is, was attending God's worship. I won't say church ladies. That's not what we're talking about here. A group of ladies who treat the church like a social club that... Uh, I think everyone has experienced that to some degree. I don't think we have that here, praise God. But that is something you find in many churches. That isn't what the Bible is talking about. It's women who are committed to the service of God. This is how Matthew Henry puts it. And, and particularly when I say the service, I mean the worship of God. They're the ones you'll always find in church. He says, It should seem these women were eminent and exemplary for devotion attending more frequently and seriously at the place of worship than others did. They took a greater interest in the tabernacle than most. And their devotion was seen in two things. First, in their concern for the tabernacle, in making their contribution, and two, in their desire to be a part of it. If you think of the description of the tabernacle, you might have thought, especially given the social uh, hierarchies of that day and the social realities, that perhaps the women wouldn't have a place. But these were women who were desirous to have a place, and Scripture was acknowledging, indeed, they did have a place. And so the sons of Korah, it turns out, were not the only ones who longed to be in the courts of the tabernacle. Another thing that we might notice about these women, again, just one verse, but so much is said. Do you notice what they gave away in order to make the bronze altar or the bronze laver? They gave away their mirrors and so this becomes a picture of mortification. I don't want to be too controversial in saying this, but I think it is uh, a fair point to make that, that worldly women are given to vanity. And the mirror becomes a picture of the sin to which women are especially prone to. 
But on the opposite side of the spectrum are godly women who are modest, who gladly give up their mirrors. Do you understand the picture that I'm describing? And so here is a picture in the service of these godly women of repentance in the service of God. Two things that always go together and that ought to go together. That is to say we ought to come to God in worship with broken and repentant hearts. And that is the sacrifice he's seeking from us and in which he delights. To put it metaphorically, we ought to give up our mirrors. We ought to give up our vanity and our sin. We ought to give up the things which most pander to our flesh and give it up to God and his service. You see, they didn't throw the mirrors away. They gave them in order to make the bronze laver. Do you notice that it is always the modesty of women that the Bible notices and celebrates? This is what Peter talks about. It's what Paul talks about. The quiet, the meek, the gentle spirit. The quiet piety of women who gather at the door of the tabernacle. Or you think of the piety of the women who gathered at the cross or at the tomb. Or the woman who anointed Jesus' body for burial. Every time you notice the same spirit. But let me move on now to a third point, which is really, in many ways, the real focus of the passage. Although I don't want to get bogged down. I want to make these points Uh, As simply and as briefly as I can. As you can tell, I think it's clear I'm not interested in all the details of what was constructed here. But I do want to point uh, to the greater glories of the new covenant as seen in what was built. And what was built was seven things. You have the ark. You have the table. You have the lampstand. You have the altar of incense. The altar of burnt offering. The bronze laver. And the courtyard. So there is a very simple summary of each. And in describing each of these, uh, and, and, and once you have a picture of these seven things, if you go back and read the passage, it actually isn't so difficult to grasp. You see exactly what he's describing. Uh, even the poles which were meant to, to make this a portable thing, because they were always on the move. Everything suddenly begins to make sense. Uh, so I, I want to look at each of these and then point to its greater typological significance, the greater glories of the new covenant as seen in what was built. First, you have uh, this complex of things that was built. You have the ark, the mercy seat, and the cherubim. First of all, then, the ark, which is called the ark of the testimony. And the importance of the ark was seen in what it contained. What it contained was the, the tablets of stone, the ten commandments, uh, which was to be a testimony to Israel, a continual testimony as to their duty to keep the law. The law is that by which they were promised life and blessing, but also which cursed, uh, which promised cursings if they failed to keep it. And so the law becomes the basis or the foundation of the covenant itself. But it also becomes, we see, in the mercy seat that was placed above it, the foundation of God's throne and God's rule. The mercy seat was to be the throne of God where he dwelt in the innermost holy place. Where God would meet with the people and they would have access to him in the person of the high priest and also from which he would speak to them and give them his ten commandments. And so God, uh, the picture is God is there ruling from his throne. 
And again, the idea of rule underscores the importance of the law. But the real emphasis here is not upon the justice and the law of God. You notice it is not called the legal throne or something like that. It's called the mercy seat. The emphasis is upon the mercy which covers the law. In fact, the word can be translated propitiation. Fascinatingly, uh, that word propitiation, if you, if you turn it around and come into the New Testament, you, you will notice that the word propitiation, I think, occurs four times. And one time it's actually translated mercy seat because it was capable of that translation. The idea here is that of propitiation. The idea was that, in other words, God in his rule was extending grace. All of this is uh, played out in a dramatic Ritual on the Day of Atonement, and I won't get into the details of that now, but uh, the point which is underscored here is the justice and the mercy of God by which he meets the people of God. And uh, obviously, the heavenly counterpart of that is what is called in the New Testament the throne of grace. The throne of God is the throne of grace. But then there were these cherubim that were placed uh, looking down upon the seat as though to signify here are uh, the angels which attend the throne of God, which is certainly true on the heavenly throne. There were angels there attending the throne. But if you think about what the cherubim represent to man with respect to his access to God, you think of the cherubim who were placed as it were, at the door of the garden. When man was cast out of the garden, it was the cherubim who stood there guarding entrance into the garden because man would defile the garden through his sin. And it was the cherubim who were placed there uh, to, to keep him out. But now uh, the sense is that the angels have laid down their swords and that God in his wrath has been propitiated Uh, Through the sacrifices, which of course pointed to the greater sacrifice, the once for all sacrifice of the new covenant. But now the cherubim stand there attending his throne, not as foes, but as friends. And we are able to come into the presence of God as those who are reconciled. And that is not only a picture of what then becomes enacted on the day of atonement and what God was indicating to Israel as signs in her own day, the symbolism of the ark and the seat and the cherubim was that God and the sinner might be reconciled and come together as friends once more. But typologically, this becomes a picture and a dramatic uh, depiction of Christ's ministry daily at the throne of grace. Christ as the one who propitiates the wrath of God, not by casting the law aside, but by standing upon it. Again, God's rule is, or God is enthroned upon his law, and his rule is established in the law. But there is, thank God, a covering of grace, and there is a daily ministry there by which we are able to have access. Uh, so, you have, well, you have uh, a picture, as I say, of the greater realities of the new covenant. But then you have the table, and we'll notice the same things with all uh, of the things that were made. The showbread that was placed upon the table. The picture uh, was that of 
bread which was continually offered to God. The table was, as it were, a place of communion. This was something that man offered to God. But God was also offering something to man, if only in pictorial form. The idea that man and God were meant to commune together. They were, as it were, through the ministry of the priests, to dine together. But as we go forward into the New Covenant, we find once again that very imagery is brought forward into into a greater fullness, into a perfect fullness. And we too find that a table is set before us, a literal table, and it is set with bread, literal bread. And, uh, and, and we can only notice how much greater this table is than the table of the Old Covenant. Yes, there's always bread there, and there's a priestly ministry which occurs there. But here is a bread that's made, uh, meant to be eaten. Not offered to God, but to the people. And not just uh, for the priests to minister, uh, but for all of the people to enjoy together. And so you notice again uh, that the imagery here is carried forward into the New Covenant, underscores the, great, the greatness of the New Covenant. Number three, the golden lampstand. The golden lampstand was... Uh, like the bread ever to be burning. The bread was ever to appear on the table, so the light was ever to be burning. This was a testimony of the unbroken fellowship between the people and God. Again, like the bread, but at the same time, it indicated to Israel her true station in the world as the light of the world. Here were the people of God who were meant to be shining in the midst of the heathen darkness. But as you come into the new covenant and you find the same imagery in Revelation or the language of Christ in the Gospels when he indicates to the church that you are the light of the world and that what I indicated by the lampstand is now true of you. We see uh, we see the typology again of the old covenant brought forward into the new. The church is the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A light which is meant always to be shining. A light which is meant to dispel the darkness. There was also the altar of incense. Which very simply and very naturally pointed to the prayers of the priests and of the people. And it's something which God accepted and delighted in. It was a pleasant odor. God delights in the prayers of the saints. That was his message of the Old Covenant. But that is equally the message of the New Covenant. The altar of burnt offering, which was placed in the courtyard. Here was a place where the people might all offer their offerings, as opposed uh, to the offerings that were offered within the tent. And so it was a place of sacrifice and a place of daily uh, sacrifice where the people might meet with God. And yet as we come into the new covenant, we find uh, again in uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 10, uh, the idea that what we have is better. We have an altar of which they have no part. And though he doesn't say it, he clearly intends uh, us to understand us, uh, that altar uh, as being a heavenly one. And then there was the bronze laver, number six. The bronze laver is a place of washing for the priests as they ministered in the tent. Here uh, we have the idea of anointing and washing, which was essential to the priesthood. Uh, but an, an idea, again, which we find coming forward with greater fullness into the new covenant. For Christ himself is the anointed one. 
But Christ also, in, in fact, that's what Messiah means. We recently heard that. He is the anointed one, but as the anointed one, we find that he is the one in the Gospels who washes us and who anoints us and makes us clean. Just think about how much greater what we possess than what they had. Here is our great high priest taking the water and washing us so that we may be clean. And then number seven, the courtyard. The courtyard was... Uh, Well, it was the place that these ladies were ministering. It was the place that um, the sons of Korah longed to be. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. That's what they were talking about. They didn't have a place in the tent. They had a place in the courtyard. It was closed off by walls. And then in the back you had the tent. But in the front portion you had that altar and then just the courtyard in which the people might gather. The courtyard, let us see, was a place of worship. A place of old covenant worship. And the courtyard, well, it described, in essence, the station of the old covenant believer. Because by coming into the walls of the the courtyard, he had immediate access to God. And he he was cut off from the world. He was marked off from the world as one who was holy. And yet at the same time, he could never get all the way to God. There were two doors that stood in the way. Two veils, which were not torn down until Christ came. But when Christ comes... We find not only that the veils are torn down, but that outer wall of partition, if you wonder what that's about, that's the walls around the courtyard, that is taken down too. And so the glories of the new covenant are seen in both directions. Not only in that we have immediate access into God, uh, to God in uh, the sanctuary itself. Again, think of what is said in Hebrews. The fact that we are invited into the Holy of Holies by faith through prayer, daily Boldly approaching the throne of grace. But at the same time, the the church is greatly enlarged in its relation to the world. And now the church is not uh, confined to one nation and one people. But it extends into the whole world. And so all of these things point not only to the glories of of the old covenant and the privileges of Israel, but... More importantly, to the greater glories of the new covenant. And, and, and these are things which we ought to recognize have relevance to the new covenant believer. It wasn't just the Jew that needed to know the dimensions of the tabernacle. Did you notice that everything I mentioned is mentioned in the New Testament? These are the categories of redemption. They, that, that was their express purpose. God was, again, d- dramatically depicting in the old covenant precisely what he would do in the new covenant. And so there's almost nothing more helpful to us than a knowledge of these things, a knowledge of the Old Testament and of the tabernacle itself. When we come to our New Testaments uh, and we see the greater glories of the new covenant described, we always or, or at least almost always find it using these very categories, using the imagery of the tabernacle to describe the glories of which we are now partakers. And the great or the two great things for us to see, I'll close with this. Our, our place in the church. In describing the tabernacle, I've been describing uh, the things which we are able to enjoy as new covenant believers in the place of worship today. The prayers, the worship, and so forth of the saints. But also, and more importantly, number two, our access into heaven where we are able to meet with God and to find our great high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. And with those thoughts, uh, let us respond now 
and praise to God by standing together singing praise to our Savior, hymn number 139.